Black Canary. I'll need a sparring partner. I'm Zatanna. Each time I see a little girl of five or six or seven, I can't resist a joyous urge to smile and say thank heaven. For little girls, for little girls get bigger every day. Thank heaven. Welcome back for another special episode of Power of Fishnets, the Black Canary and Zatanna podcast. Special in that, once again, we are not talking about Black Canary or Zatanna this time. I am your host, Ryan Daly, and as much as I love fishnets, even more, I love me Marvel's tiniest heroes, Ant-Man and the Wasp. Now, Ant-Man has been a favorite hero of mine for like 25 years. My affection for the Wasp, however, started a lot more recently, really just within the last couple of years. In that time, though, she has become one of my favorites, definitely a top five Marvel woman. But I never expected to dedicate a whole podcast episode to her, until I'm reading a random issue of Solo Avengers when I see it. There she is, the winsome Wasp in fishnets! In all of her countless costume changes, I had never seen her sporting fishnets, and I actually wondered if at the time it was just a printing or a pixel error, but there it is. And as soon as I saw Janet Van Dyne in fishnets, I knew two things. First, I would cover this story on a special episode of Power of Fishnets, and second, I would drop this episode around the release date of Disney's upcoming film Ant-Man and the Wasp. Within a couple of days, I knew one other thing, too. I would record this episode with Sean Ross from the Pulp to Pixel podcast. He is here with me now. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome fellow JVD lover and the host of Secret Wars and Beyond, Mr. Sean Ross. What is up, Sean? How you doing, man? Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I had to have you. I think as soon as I posted the picture on Twitter and said something like, you know, this is going to be on an upcoming episode, I think you jumped at it and you're like, oh, I want to be on this. I'm like, oh, you are. You're already penciled in. Yeah, I, I think I literally Taylor Swift stalked you. Like you had <laughs> just posted, you had just tweeted it. And within like seconds, I tweeted you back and I'm like, oh, was that desperate? I'm like, yeah, that was desperate. But that's OK, because here I am co-hosting the episode. So desperation works, folks. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it worked, whatever the strategy was. so how and when did you first discover the character of the wasp so she has she is my leader of the avengers when i first started collecting avengers which i I often get my first issue mixed up because i bought an issue off the spinner rack and then i hit like a walden books not much longer and found a few issues from before Mm -hmm. but the the first issue i can really remember is is issue 231 of the avengers volume one so it's roger stern it's al milgram coincidentally, artist of Secret Wars 2. <laughs> and uh, I think Joe Sinnott is the is the inker. And Joe Sinnott, it does a really nice job when he inks on Milgram. And she's the leader of the Avengers. And this is the issue immediately following the trial of Hank Pym. So she has just lost her husband. He's been, he seemingly turned into a supervillain. You know, he went under trial. His name was cleared. And she's been the leader of the Avengers through all of this. And, and when I first encounter her, 
she's this woman who's just been through this like really traumatic personal experience, but it is not impacting her as a leader at all. And so moving forward, like it was just automatic in my brain that like, oh yeah, the Wasp is the leader of the Avengers. And, and to this day, she is my favorite leader of the Avengers. And I think straight up, I think she's the best leader of the Avengers. I actually <laughs> prefer her to Cap and everybody else. Nice, nice. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, so much of like what you pick up just by osmosis um, and like through like trading cards and other stuff, like I always knew of the character and I knew she was a, a mainstay of the Avengers. But I started getting into Marvel Comics technically the late 80s, but really it was more of the 90s. And that meant I was an X-Men fan. The Avengers wasn't really my thing in terms of like comic books at the time until the Heroes Return stuff with Kurt Busiek and uh, and George Perez. Uh, mm. I started collecting that book for a while, and she was obviously part of that team. But the character never really jumped out at me. Um, there was a lot of other stuff that I loved, but like I just I I always just kind of knew of her as one of the founding members of the Avengers, and she was always part of the team. But I didn't have a whole lot of history with her. And then I remember during uh, Brian Michael Bendis' run when he spun off of New Avengers into the Mighty Avengers, uh, when we see uh, Tony Stark and Carol Danvers basically doing their recruitment drive. And they say, well, the first person we've got to have is the Wasp. We've got to have Janet on the team. She was one of the leaders. She was one of the best. Basically made your same pitch. One of the mm-hmm. best leaders the team ever had. We've got to have her. And I remember thinking, it's like, really? Is that kind of just fan service? Was she really that good? Was she really that important? Um she did impress me in that initial story, but I am going to say the first time I really took note of her and I really fell in love with the character was not in comics. It was the Ooh. cartoon, the Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes that came out like 2009, 2010, I think. I don't know if you've seen that, but in that one, they really played up the Wasp as this young, vivacious, but just like a thrill-seeking, like just fun-loving character. And I thought, this is a character who just has fun with her superpowers. All of the other Avengers, you know, I mean, the Hulk is obviously a tortured person. Cap has this sense of duty and self-righteousness. Tony, you know, he's smart alecky. He's he's funny like that, but he's really, he's, he has the burden of knowledge in that, you know, he can, that, that futurism thing where he can sort of like see and he knows the danger of what's at stake. But there's an episode in that cartoon early on where the Wasp and Thor team up and they mm-hmm. end up fighting MODOK. And it's hilarious just to see the way Thor reacts to MODOK the first time he sees him. And there was just this sense of joy and fun of like these two characters who just love what they do. Um, and especially to see the way she contrasted with Hank Pym on that cartoon, who was an adventurous sort, but very much a, a peace-loving knight, like, never wanted to be a crime fighter. He didn't like violence. He did it as a last resort. Um, and I just, I love that sense of, like, the Wasp. It's like, yeah, she she's there because she likes it. She has fun with her power. She believes, she takes it responsibly, but she's not tragic. She's not beaten down and everything like that. And that was just, that was the version of the character that I loved and I sort of retroactively started thinking about her that way as much as I could when I started reading some of her older appearances. And it didn't always line up. It didn't always jive. Um, but that was my throughway into when I started reading, you know, earlier adventures of the Avengers, um, certainly the Stern run, the Shooter run before it, um, and, and things like that, that I just, I really started to like the character a lot. 
Yeah, I loved that cartoon. I, In fact, I was devastated when they ended it in order to relaunch it as basically a much paler version. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah I just, it was so good. It was so true to the old Avengers stories. And the thing I loved about Janet on that show is, one, she was our gateway character. Mm-hmm. So you were, you were meant to empathize with her. You were meant to sort of cheer for her. And I love the fact that she was sort of underpowered. But that, that episode in particular that you referred to, there's that moment where she and Thor kind of look at each other and they realize like, oh, we both love this. <laughs> like we are both like warriors born. Like we're both fighters. This is when we're happiest. And I, I think what they did in that cartoon that was brilliant is they took the, the shooter and stern run in particular and they distilled Janet down to her essence, which is super fun loving, um, you know, vivacious, full of life but also unbelievably fierce warrior who eventually in the cartoon, I think would have grown into the leader of the Avengers because they clearly mm-hmm. made her the heart of the team from the start. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I appreciated that show in particular because they didn't make her the heart of the team because she was the girl. Right. You know, she, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't that like de facto workplace mom thing. It was very much like, no, 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 this is the character. This is who she is. She's multifaceted and she's awesome. Yeah, that's a that's a great way to be introduced to her. I Like I said, I met her in the Stern run towards the beginning of it and got to see her grow and evolve. But that that's a that's a beautiful way to be introduced to her because she's an amazing character in that show. So, all right, let us get to the story that we're actually going to talk about. Uh, the Wasp appears in the second story in Solo Avengers number 15. This was cover dated February 1989. According to Mike's Amazing World, the on-sale date was October 11th, 1988. Uh, did you read or follow Solo Avengers? I guess, to, from what I understand, it was the first 20 issues were Solo Avengers, and then the next 20, they rebranded it Avengers Spotlight. Yeah, I did actually because it was a Hawkeye spinoff. Yeah, it was basically yeah, it was a Hawkeye so yeah. And it and it was a it was a fun series in the beginning, particularly I think I think the early issues are predominantly written by Tom DeFalco, if I remember correctly. They were drawn by M. D. Bright. And M. D. Bright is like one of those unsung heroes of the of the eighties and, and early nineties as art in on art, and he's probably best known for like Icon from Milestone or Green Lantern from DC. But his work was amazing, and I was a huge Hawkeye fan. I loved him in this miniseries. I loved him in West Coast Avengers. So I was totally in on Avengers Spotlight and, and our solo Avengers. And the book is – like most sort of pseudo-anthology books, it wavers greatly in its quality. <laughs> but there are some real gems in there. Yeah, and in like the first half of the book was always a, an ongoing Hawkeye story. And then the second half was the sort of anthology. You got to fill in short story featuring some character or another. Well, and the first arc was great for Hawkeye because there's always been that hole in his origin of like, well, wait a minute, he he joins a circus and the swordsman teaches him archery, <laughs> and that's always been weird. And they kind of retcon that as there was another guy there named Trickshot who who really taught him, and and that added, I thought that added a pretty nice layer to his to his backstory. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Solo Avengers number fifteen, the short story Ronin on Empty, yeah, puns. <laughs> This is written by Fabian Nicieza, penciled by Tom Morgan, inked by Mark McKenna, lettered by Michael Heisler, colored by Paul Beckton, and edited by Mark Grunewald. Janet Van Dyne represents her family's company at an electronics trade show in Michigan when a surge of screams rises from one of the displays. Janet shrinks down, becoming the pint-sized Avenger the Wasp, and zips over to the Stain International display, where a giant Unicron-looking robot appears to be eating someone whole. Janet recognizes the giant as the top half of Red Ronin, a colossal mecha that battled the Earth's mightiest heroes in Avengers 197 through 199 of their own book. 
She also identifies the would-be finger food as Karaguchi Inoyawa, a stain executive there to demonstrate, in the most ostentatious and tasteless way possible, that the reprogrammed half-completed Red Ronin is perfectly safe and suitable for construction and terraforming. Karaguchi attempts to flirt with Jan, but she shuts him down. As she walks away, though, she can't help but admit to herself that he's cute and she considers having dinner with him. Meanwhile, a disgraced former Stain employee named Joe Kilman hijacks the Red Ronin's programming. The robot awakens, knocking down an access tower. Janet shrinks again, using her bioblast sting on a support cable that hooks onto the tower, saving dozens of people below from being crushed. Then the Red Ronin moves, crashing through the wall of the convention, crawling across the parking lot, smashing every car in its way. Janet tends to the panicking people inside, noticing one unconscious man. It's Joe Kilman, and the Red Ronin's schematics are visible on his computer. Jan grabs Karaguchi to ID Kilman and to find out what he did to the robot. Karaguchi tells her that Red Ronin's programming is locked, it will seek out its legs currently in Chicago, and destroy anything in its path to get them. Jan strips off her pantsuit to reveal her orange one-piece wasp costume and... Gasp! Be still my heart! A pair of fishnet stockings. <laughs> yeah, boy! She takes a headset communicator and flies off after the robot, with Karaguchi directing her. She flies inside the mech, but trips the internal defense system. She zigs and zags, avoiding heat-seeking pellets, but she's doused with flame-retardant foam. In rage, she rips out a bit of circuitry, causing the robot to act drunk and fall down. She makes it to the Ronin's central wiring system. Karaguchi tells her to pull the red wire, but they are all red, so she pulls all of the red wires. Eventually, the robot stops. In the aftermath, as construction crews move the robot, Karaguchi repeats his offer to take Jan to dinner. As if in answer, the red Ronin burps, and Jan makes fun of him. The <laughs> end. All right, Sean, what did you think of this short story? Yeah, I think it's fun, man. I, I usually think of Tom Morgan as the man who ruined the 90s. <laughs> uh, he he is amongst my least favorite artists. Like if Basically, if you asked me, if you told me Grant Morrison, who's probably my favorite comic book writer, was going to write a new series, and I, you know, I'd be like, "Oh my god!" And then you told me Tom Morgan was drawing it; it would give me real pause. I'd be like, uh, "I don't know if I can do it." Um, but but I really liked it. I thought it was fun. And and you know, after opening with bagging on Morgan, I don't know if it's Mark McKenna or if it's just the fact that we still have one foot in the '80s, so Morgan hasn't fully embraced his like everybody has Polaris's hair when she's possessed by malice. Like, I don't know if that's, you know, if he just hasn't developed his over kind of really overt style yet, but I thought the art was really fun. There's some great facial expressions, particularly when Jan is sort of poking fun, um, you know, and, and is at the, the moment, one of my favorite moments is when she like strips down <laughs> and the, the, you know, the facial expressions just do a really good job communicating the story. You know, it is, it's a, you know, it's a second half story in an issue of solo Avengers so there's only so much that can happen, but I thought it was a cute little character piece. You know, I thought it was a it was a nice little look at at kind of some of the different aspects of Jan's personality. Yeah, I I mean for just being a, a small showcase, I liked most of what they did with the character. Um, as for the art, he did fairly well with the action, but I never thought he really conveyed the cuteness of her. Um, but it's not bad. It, it's it's fine. You're right. Maybe the inking is helping, like sort of like soften a little bit of it. I don't know. I, I I thought it was okay. In terms of the way the character is depicted, 
One of the things that that leapt out at me that initially I liked and then I hated, and then I thought, well, do I hate this because it's out of character, or do I hate this because it's really true to character, was the fact that we get this guy, uh, Karaguchi, flirting with her, and initially she fends him off, and I'm like, yeah, good for you. And then as soon as she leaves, she's like, hmm, he is pretty cute. I wonder if he likes sushi, and she's already thinking about you know going out with him and and of course you you kind of think about Jan the way she was in her initial stories and the way she was you know she was very much a product of you know fifties and sixties comics when she was created as a supporting character for Hank Pym um, and even when she was a hero she was kind of wanting Hank to like wine and dine her and take her out and they're very much playing into this kind of girl stereotype and it bothered me but I was like is that out of character for her to be, to have that sort of reaction to Karaguchi? I, it's funny. I struggled with this a little bit too. And I think part of it is because we're reading it in 2018, right? Like, like we like flirting and, you know, I I, can, can have just a different connotation and we're just a little more conscious of kind of some things than we were before. And, you know, some could argue we're so conscious that maybe we lose some elements, but, you know, never it doesn't hurt to, to be more aware. But I, I definitely I struggle with this, too. And, and where I came to on this issue, because I thought this would definitely come up where I came to on this issue is I think Nicieza plays it really effectively because he he walks the line between, you know, yeah, that, you know, uh, she gets hit on pretty strongly and then she does fend the guy off and then does start thinking, well, you know, maybe he is kind of cute. And like you, I had an initial reaction, but then I remembered, oh, no, wait, I've seen Janet's personality done really poorly. <laughs> and, you know, in in our Marvel Secret Wars podcast, we reviewed volume one already, Dr. G and I did. And and Jim Shooter just destroys Janet Van Dyne in that series. Mm-hmm. I mean, he goes back to some sort of default setting. I mean, maybe literally maybe the depiction of her in Avengers issue one. I mean, with no growth after that as just this really flighty, irresponsible easily man- manipulated by men kind of you know just meek creature which is just awful that's not who she is at all and in this issue i liked the fact that she's kind of playful you know she's she's kind of shooing him but then considering it and the thing i thought was well she's in control the entire time and for me yes. that's the difference yes I, yeah. I i agree i think that was why i ultimately kind of like sided uh, giving it the benefit of the doubt it's not quite sex positive, but she's never out of control. She's not being manipulated or played by this guy um, until the very last panel. She's still kind of in control of the situation. And if she ended up going out with him, it wouldn't be because he seduced her. You know, it would it would be her, you know, her in control of the situation. It'd be because she wanted to, because she made the choice. Um, yeah, and so, yeah. I like that about her. I, and I like that about this issue, too, because... I think it's it's so hard to do nuance in comics, and I think it's especially hard to do today when it comes to the depiction of women, because you know we have to like we want to be careful and we want to make sure that women are are being in in, in fiction are being depicted depicted as as women in life, you know, multifaceted and with many different strengths and weaknesses. And but at the same time, I think sometimes we err so far on that side that we panic if a female character is depicted in a way that maybe historically seemed weak. But but Jan's never weak. She's just and like you said, sex positive might be too strong. But she's definitely fling positive. You know, like like I, <laughs> you know, I, Jan Jan's definitely a you know if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. And I I actually like that about her because again, what it always comes back to for me is oh she's fully in control of this situation. Like everything that happens happens because she wants it to. She just wants you know what you know why I mean she she's literally 
the sort of female version of like, well, I don't need to buy the, the cow. I can go around and get milk for free. And, and I, I don't know. I like that. I like the subversion of that. And I, I like that writers have taken her to that place. Uh, you know, it's been done poorly, like I said, but it's I think it's fun in this in this issue, especially because Nicieza has no real estate. Like he has no room to move. So I think he does a good job of like, you know, hey, let's dip for a second into this part of her personality, but not so far that it ends up being, a you know, a farce. Would Jan go to a trade show like this? And would she wear a pantsuit there? <laughs> so that was – I can suspend disbelief, but but you have called out the part that was maybe a bridge too far because I'm watching – so Red Ronin – and I'm, I'm already excited because I'm like, oh, Red Ronin's in this and, you know, is his arm going to detach? And like, I, you know, I totally owned, you know, the uh, the Shogun Warrior toy when I was a kid and <laughs> I was super excited for this. And then they cut from Stain International and, – and I mean this is going to be like – total continuity nerd but a part of me was like wait was Stain international still around at this point like hadn't the ironmonger story happened and then i'm like would they be the big man on campus at the show and then and then van dyne industries is like this tiny little booth and i'm like no that's and so like i was obsessing over stupid stuff like that right. but no i think you're right i don't think she's at a trade show and more importantly i do not think she is like you know presaging hillary clinton's choice of dress <laughs> like i i don't see her in a pantsuit she's not a pantsuit woman to me and so yeah that that was uh that was a part i had to really struggle with <laughs> i think she would probably be at the cocktail bar after the show oh yeah or she'd where, be the feature yeah yeah that's where she would be networking she would be you know beyond all of that though I, I think I loved – I, I really got a kick out of this story in part. I think I'm susceptible to this type of story in the plot. I like when shrinking heroes have to kind of like go inside larger bodies or things like that. Like uh, for for numerous reasons, I think my favorite episode of Batman the Brave and the Bold is when the Atom and Aquaman have to shrink and go inside Batman and fight <laughs> off like the virus when he's poisoned by chem- like chemo or something. And I just love it. I, the Futurama episode when they like they go inside Fry after he eats the truck stop sandwich and gets the worms <laughs> that are changing him. I love those things. Well, um, it's awesome. I mean, if you think back to like the days of early cable when they would show the same movie fifty mm-hmm. times, so, like you were home as a yeah. kid in the summer, Inner Space, man, with oh, Dennis yeah, Quaid. Yeah. That was like that. That started my love of like at some point in my life, I would like to be shrunken and injected into a human body so I could go on that journey. Like that's that's a, that's a bucket list item for me. <laughs> But here is the one sort of thing that I like. I my brain ran into as I'm enjoying the plot. Jan has the capacity to shrink, so she can go inside a, like a robot or whatever and have this like adventure thing. But Red Ronin is already giant, <laughs> so a normal sized person could go inside his body and have the same sort of adventure. Like proportionately. We don't get more bang for our buck based on the fact that she's shrinking and she's already going into a larger, like, you know, a robot that's the size of a skyscraper. It's like they don't – he was sort of – he was supposed to, like, pick one. And I think the reason I was hung up on this was as I was reading this, I was reminded of my own little, like, head fan fiction where a couple of years ago I had in mind what I would do if I ever got the chance to write an Ant-Man comic – um, and part of the storyline would be that Scott Lang starts his own kind of security firm like the movie Sneakers, 
where he oh, specializes cool. in using his power to break into banks and other corporations to show how weak they are. Now, Nick Spencer ended up basically using that idea in his astonishing Ant-Man run, even though he mm-hmm. didn't play into that, but that was like a big thing, was Scott Lang started this security solutions company, and I was like, damn it, I was going to have that idea. <laughs> um, but I was going to do, like, in the first issue, or like the first story that I was going to write, was S.H.I.E.L.D. grabs Scott Lang, and they're like, we need you, and they bring him to, like, some construction site or, like, warehouse or something where they just happen to uncover the head of one of the Ultron robots from some oh. long ago forgotten body. And they're like, this is Ultron. We do not screw around with this. We need you to go inside, like, investigate, find out if there's anything wrong. And he's like, I'm the wrong Ant-Man. I, I didn't build this <laughs> thing. You got the wrong guy. Um, but then it would end up being Ant-Man crawling inside of this Ultron head that wakes up and you just see all of it trying to like deactivate and he's basically fighting, basically going through a death trap warehouse that's all inside the head of one Ultron drone. So I like had that in mind. That was the story. And then when I read this, I was like, okay, they're kind of doing the same thing. It's not a wholly original idea, um, but we're getting the Wasp doing a lot of the same stuff, just flying into this red Ronin um, being attacked by the uh, basic defense systems. It, it's pretty awesome. It's a good idea. I mean, I, my favorite version of this, I mean, obviously there's that great Ant-Man issue, you know, by, with Neil Adams and Roy Thomas where, you know, he goes into the vision and mm-hmm. to repair him. But Brian Michael Bendis and I think Stuart Eminen did an issue of New Avengers. And this is when um, Norman Osborn, you know, controlled everything. And, and he, he actually kidnaps Luke Cage and he puts a uh, attaches a bomb to his heart. I guess Brian Michael Bendis was watching Lost at the time or something. <laughs> and he, he attaches a bomb to his heart. And so they call in a couple specialists. And I think it, it's, one of them is definitely Ant-Man. I think the other one may be Doctor Strange because they needed like a surgeon, right, somebody who, right. who knew the human body. And they shrink down and they go inside Luke Cage and they take a, a moment. And Spider-Man looks at Luke Cage and he goes, there are two men inside you right now. And Luke Cage goes, don't. And then they just cut, <laughs> they just cut inside the body to Doctor Strange and Ant-Man. It is, it's brilliant comedic writing by by Bendis. It cracked me up. Nice. But yeah, yeah, Jan, I, you know, it's funny as you were saying this, as you were like, you know, she doesn't need to shrink because Red Ronin is huge. I was looking and I'm like, well, technically she might not be shrunken down because she does have the ability per the Roger Stern era to, to have her wings when she's, a, you know, mm-hmm. about like four and a half feet tall. But no, they're clearly playing this as like cute manic pixie dream girl shrunk down, you know, flying through the, the, the big robot. So yeah, you're right. It it makes, it doesn't make any sense at all, but it's still really fun. It's still a a really fun little bonk. Um, it is the the pages aren't numbered, but the third to last page in the story, uh, she's flying through a tunnel. She's attacked by the flame retardant foam, the special, the sound effect attached to the flame retardant foam sploosh. Oh, oh, Archer has just ruined everything for us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I read that and I couldn't help it. I was like, oh, well, no. And you can't, you can't read it because like you have, like now it's in Pam's voice. Right? Exactly. It's, like, it's sploosh. Pam's sploosh. Like, yeah, there's a hole. <laughs> and yeah, I'm waving my hand. You can't see me, but I'm waving my hand. Yeah, exactly. I'm doing the entire, <laughs> I'm doing the full motion, man. I'm doing the full motion. Yeah, but with starlets, models. Oh, and one time, two actual princesses. Two at the same time? Yeah, they were sisters. Sploosh. Yeah, you're right. That that has ruined that. But you know what? I, I'm glad you pointed that scene out because, you know, she starts calling out like, hey, you know, if, can you tell me ahead of time that these things are coming? And it's this fun little back and forth. And on the next page, you know, her the facial expressions. And again, Tom Morgan is is amongst my least favorite artists. But man, he, he does a cute job here. There are these great facial expressions where she's like, you know, she gets 
sort of beamed, you know, mm-hmm. zapped, and she's you know flying in, and she's making these these great like, oh, you know, fist up, I'm mad kind of, and and they read a little young for Janet Van Dyne, but they're still really fun, and it's you know it, it adds to the light kind of airiness of this of this episode, which I thought was really cool. The spirit of this story would make me read more stories like this. Yeah. Like, they wouldn't be my first choice, but you know what? If this same creative team had done a four-issue Wasp miniseries, I would be all over that. Me too. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the Elongated Man miniseries yes. from the yeah. 90s by yeah, Mike Harrowbeck on art, and I, I don't remember who wrote it. I think it was Gerard Jones, unfortunately. Okay, yeah, so I'm going to stick with I don't remember who wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> good, good call, good call. Uh, but I knew it had Mike Parabek art, so it was really great. But that same really fun, like, we're going to lean into the light side of this, and, you know, we're going to make it, you know, just a, a fun, silly story, and we're not going to apologize. I love that. Yeah, I, it's funny, when you when you said you were going to do this issue, I was all in because I love, you know, Janet, but I hadn't really read this story in years, and so I went and, I, you know, I dug the issue out. And upon the first reread, I was like, oh, man, there's not really – this is kind of a little a moose-bouche of a story. There's not much here. And then the more I reread it, the more I was like, you know what? I would totally read a miniseries you know, in this vein and where Jan's just kind of falling in and out of silly romantic encounters. But it's, like we said, you know, always in control and right. it's just having fun adventures. I think it's really cool. Uh, sp- I just had this thought, but like speaking of you know her, her romantic life uh, and speaking of her ability to – you know, still have the flight and the wings when she's larger. You mentioned on the, I, at the time of this recording, at least, uh, on the most recent episode of your Secret Wars and Beyond podcast, that you're a fan of the Dane Whitman Black Knight. What did you think of their little kind of flirtation during the Stern run? Do you think anything should have happened there? I, I think I loved it more because nothing happened. It was, it was the ultimate example, not the ultimate, it was a great example of the sort of nerdy, shy guy pining for the much more, you know, boisterous, adventurous, uh, aggressive, but not in like a sexual way, just like mm. the most, the more, you know, vivacious girl. And I really love uh, Dane Whitman. It like speaks to my heart. Like, I don't know. I, I must've had an ebony blade in a previous life <laughs> or something, or maybe I'm just really into chain mail and I don't know it, but he, um, his like, like he would just moon over her and they'd have these interactions and she's talking to him like the leader of the Avengers. And she's talking to him about, you know, a battle or something. And he is having an entirely different conversation in his head where he is clearly head over heels in love with her. I loved that. I loved that relationship. And I, I think I loved it more for nothing happening in it. Uh, because I, I like, you know, unrequited love spoke yeah. to my little nerd heart, you know, like I even as I mean, I was young when I read those issues and and even but I was old enough to know like, oh, this is what love's going to be like for me quite often. <laughs> like I'm going to be the nerdy guy in the corner, like pining away after the girl I could never really have, you know. Yeah. So I liked it. How about you? Did you was that a relationship you were fond of? Uh, it was. And you, you make a good case for why they shouldn't have hooked up. But as much as I like Ant-Man and the Wasp and her her being, you know, with Hank Pym, and Hank Pym is one of my fit for for all of his faults, and there are many. And I, I, I really, when I when I say he's one of my favorite characters, I I kind of have to apply some of my own headcanon and wish fulfillment onto the character of what I would like to see from Hank Pym in order to justify uh, him being a favorite character. Uh, I love the history that Hank and Jan have, but I wish it had ended. 
And I yeah. wish it was allowed to just be history and they didn't have to be shackled to each other for all time. Uh, and I think part of what she needed in order to get beyond that was she needed a real rebound. And we're going to talk about her first rebound relationship later on um, in, in one of my favorite issues. Um, but I think if she had been allowed to have a long-term actual romance with somebody like Black Knight or Cap or, or whoever, like just somebody, maybe somebody from the Avengers, maybe somebody else, not Magneto. Um, but, oh, God. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. Yeah, um, Secret Wars. Oh, but, and, and, and I'm, I'm also saying this. I, I hate the idea of just like that she'd be defined by a romance with somebody else. But I think in order to really establish that her marriage was over and that Hank Pym was her past life, I think she needed somebody else. She needed a long-term kind of rebound or, or a second boyfriend, a second husband or something like that to kind of help progress the character a little bit more just out of Hank's shadow. Um, yeah, I, or out of, I, I out of agree. the shadow of the the slap heard around the comic book world, and I think you and I probably play similar continuity gymnastics because because Hank Pym is one of my all time favorite characters, and I fall back a lot on the you know Jim Shooter never intended for him to hit her. <laughs> you know Bob Paul read the plot and he went a little further than he was supposed to. But regardless of all that, I love Hank Pym too because of his sort of redemption arc that I I grew up reading. And I, I've thought about that a lot. I like the fact that over the years, she and Hank have had sort of on again, off again, as long as it's off again permanently, because mm -hmm. it, it feels organic. Like, oh, yeah, of course you would go back to your ex at times. And of course you would have, you know, especially if you were married to the person, you would have moments where you were maybe lonely or vulnerable and you would kind of hook back up at times. But but I, I really I want it to be over. And, and actually, it's funny that you bring this up because so Greg Arujo and I on, on Marvel Secret Wars, we always bring surprise questions for each other to the podcast to try to spring them. And I actually had a surprise question for you. Right. And it was yeah, it was, and, and you kind of already already really asked it, which is, you know, she's always hey, Jan has always been defined by her relationship with Hank Pym, which dates back to the 60s. If you could pair her moving forward with any Marvel character, Muso, from where she is right now moving forward, who would it be? From where she is right now, 2018? Yeah. Is she even around? Yeah, so she is, you know, she's she's been bat brought back from the dead after Secret Invasion. Yeah. And she's she was on the Avengers. Um, she was on the Uncanny Avengers. And then she was on an Avengers team. Actually, yeah, the Uncanny Avengers up until maybe a few months ago. And then she's, she's on the current Avengers, or she was until Marvel's most recent reboot, which I think today's Wednesday, so that was yesterday. And so... Um, <laughs> So, so I don't know if you have somebody like I think you said Cap, which I thought was interesting. Is there somebody that you think she would pair with really well? Oh, I, I need to think about it. All right, it's got to be somebody. It can't be somebody that would just suck up all the oxygen and that would drown her out. It's got to be somebody mm -hmm. that would allow her to thrive. It's also got to be somebody that is a good contrast. Actually, I'm looking at your Skype icon. The fact that when he was part of the team, Hercules was so dismissive of her, oh. I, 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 I would kind of be fascinated to see that revisited and see the two of them look at each other a few years later and a few, like, having different experiences. I know they've made uh, Hercules more of a bisexual character or, or even pansexual character now, which somebody Her like that. Well, Hercules is an interesting choice. Current Herc Hercules, the current version of him in Marvel, because interestingly, they, they've made him sober. Like they've actually they've had him in his most recent series, which was a few years ago. He sort of acknowledges 
oh, I've been a crazy drunk hmm. and I and I'm a joke in the superhero community when I used to be the greatest hero on the planet. So he gets sober and he actually starts trying to like do smaller deeds to, in order to make the world better. It was a really fun take on him. And I think that Hercules would be really interesting. The sort of 12 step instead of 12 labors, the 12 step <laughs> Hercules and where, you know, he does go and apologize to her. I think that's an, that's a really great choice, man. That, that came out of nowhere. I didn't, I didn't think of that at all. Yeah. Uh, I don't know who else did, did you have in mind? So I, I think I went into a similar vein as you. I went to the Roger Stern era Avengers again, and there are there's a couple issues. I think it's Avengers like 251, 252, where she takes off to the Bahamas. She's like, I'm the leader of the Avengers. I'm super stressed out. I'm going on a vacation. And she meets a hot guy on the beach, and they have a nice little dalliance. And she's, again, fully in control, fully acknowledges, oh, this is just a vacation, you know, fling. Mm-hmm. But it turns out he's Paladin, you know, who was that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that really low-level sort of mer- uh, mercenary character. And I liked them as a pair because it's – you actually, you called it – she's still the dominant personality. She's still the one who lights up the room. But he's strong and centered and he's good with her, but he doesn't need her. And I think that would be the appeal where like she can be the star and he's fine with it because he's not interested in that to begin with. And then he can be sort of quiet and focused and she can plug into that too. So I don't know. I liked them. I liked them as a pair a lot. I thought that was an interesting move by Stern. Yeah. I mean, the other one that I kind of like speaks to one of my other questions, which I'll actually, uh, I'll just, I'll, I'll lead into this one right now, which is like recommended reading favorite stories featuring this character in the past. Uh, and I'll start off with mine, um, which is a very quirky story from the Avengers because it doesn't involve them being the earth's mightiest heroes or fighting off an alien invasion or anything. Um, but it's Avengers issue 224. Uh, and at this point she has broken up with Hank. Hank is actually in jail at this point. She's kind of devastated dealing with the after effects of their, their breakup and she's basically doing that. She's like kind of going out and trying to like socialize and who kind of falls into her orbit, like satellites that cross it's Tony Stark. And at this point she does not know that he is Iron Man. That is even though they're founding members of the Avengers, she is like one of the few people who doesn't know that particular secret, but they occupy the same sort of social circles and they click. And the way the story is written you kind of see, wow, these two are really, really good together. Um, they just have this kind of like fun joie de vivre and they're both rich and they come from the same kind of background and they just have this love of life. And it, it, it's totally like, you know, like it's a, it's a power couple dynamic, you think, like in like sort of celebrity terms. Um, like they, they would be all over the tabloids and everything and there would be like an like a mashup of their name, like tan it or tone it or something like that um they, they would be you would see them them on the news uh and it, they, they're such a great couple and it, she brings out the best in tony and he kind of helps her move past past uh hank and they're like really good and then like you know tony just goes home or back to the mansion and thor and captain america are sitting there waiting for him just staring daggers at him going what the hell are mm-hmm. you doing it's like, I know you're having fun, but dude, she's your best friend's wife, and she doesn't know your biggest secret. You've been still keeping this thing. Like, the, the Avengers, it's like, so, and, and they, he tries to justify it. He tries to play it off, and they're like, no, no, 
it's wrong. You're just wrong. And he has to go to her. And by the end of the story, he has to, he, he admits it and, and he, he reveals the secret. He tells her what's going on and she has the same feeling. And it's like this, this heartbreaking realization where she's like, yeah, I, I can't do this to Hank. She's like, if you were anybody else, mm-hmm. this wouldn't be an issue. It's like, but we've, we've still got Hank between us and this is, it's, it's wrong. And it's this heartbreaking little emotional soap opera and I just love it. It's one of my favorite Avengers issues. It has nothing to do with Kang or Ultron or anything like that. Um, just I, because I, they, they can't have this chance at happiness because of who they are. I love that story too. And I, and I love it. You, did a, you nailed it. I love it for all those reasons. But it was also my first introduction to super sketchy Tony Stark. Like I fully, <laughs> I fully believe that Tony Stark in his past has sent out a Christmas card where one of the accomplishments on it was they named a new VD after him. <laughs> and even still, this was the sketchiest thing I've ever seen. Like I, when, when Cap and Thor meet him at the mansion, Cap's like, I mean, Cap is disgusted. And I think he speaks for everyone in that moment. Cause it's so gross that he would date Jan Really behind her own back, you know, which is, you know, because he's known her for years, but she doesn't know that he's known her for years. Yeah, I love that issue. And I think it's great characterization. And she comes out better for it because she comes out saying, like, enough, like, I'm not I'm done being defined by men and it's time for me to move on. And I think that's a big launching point for her for her character arc. But God, Tony Stark is a sketchy. I mean, just he's so gross. <laughs> that story also ends with a, an image of Hank Pym in a jail cell, looking at the newspaper with the two of them together, and that yeah. will lead to him being manipulated by Egghead, which will end up culminating in the trial storyline. Everything going on with that. So yeah, it's a big moment, and it's a great. It's a great character piece. I yeah, that's an awesome choice. I, I love that issue. So yeah. what about you for your favorite uh, Wasp story or recommended reading? So I have, a, I have a couple. One of them is the super obvious choice, but it, it has to be said because it's so good, which is the Under Siege storyline in Avengers. It's uh, from 1986. It's by Roger Stern, John Buscema, and Tom Palmer. And it's Avengers technically 273 to 277, but the, the issues before and after sort of deal with the repercussions of it. And, and it's you know the mo- probably one of the three most famous stories in Avengers history where the Masters of Evil – invade Avengers Mansion and they destroy the team. I mean, they almost beat Hercules to death. And the only Avenger left on the outside is Janet Van Dyne. And she has to gather herself, build a new team of Avengers, and then invade the mansion and overcome the Masters of Evil. And she does so. I mean, it's it's peak. The Roger Stern Avengers run is, is one of my four favorite comic book runs of all time. And I don't think he gets enough credit as like one of the big guns of 1980s, especially for Marvel. And that particular story is the end of the arc. Technically, Jim Shooter began, but Roger Stern really picked up for Jan after the fall of of Hank Pym and after their divorce. And she, in particular, I would zero in on Avengers 275, where she's at the hospital visiting visiting Hercules, who's on death's door. And Scott Lang, Ant-Man, is there. And this is before the movie, you know, 30 years before the movie. So he's actually more of like a science-based character Mm -hmm. than he is like a goofy character. And the absorbing man and Titania show up to kill Hercules and the wasp and Ant-Man have to stop them. I mean, and it's it's one of those like mutants and masterminds where you're you're you know, your DM is like, oh, you turn the corner and there's Titania. And you're like, dude, I'm playing the wasp. Like, how am I supposed to be Titania? <laughs> These are two Hulk point. villains. Seriously, like against yeah. Ant-Man and the wasp. Yeah. Like there aren't enough hero points in the universe to win that fight, but they use their brains and they, you know, and they were, are able to defeat both of them. And so that's the, you know, like if, if, if you're listening to this and you just really aren't familiar with her as a character, like there's your Bible, like go to that story first. 
I would pick a maybe a little lesser known story would be from Marvel Team Up uh, 59 and 60. This is from 1977. And it's Chris Claremont and John Byrne. So, uh, you know, a, a mm-hmm. team lost to time. I know people probably aren't <laughs> so super familiar with their work. But um, Spidey goes to see Yellow Jacket. And they're attacked by Equinox, who's half Iceman, half Human Torch. He's, yeah. you know, very, yeah. very 70s. And they're fighting and it looks like Yellow Jacket dies. And so the Wasp, you know, swears revenge. And and this is a really cool issue because even during the issue, Spider-Man himself even thinks, God, I've always thought of her as this like flighty socialite who wasn't very serious. But man, she's hardcore. And she goes in and she helps defeat Equinox. And over the course of those two issues, you also come to find out that Hank Pym had had been adjusting her power level. and She didn't realize it. So she comes out of that story and he's still alive, obviously. She comes out of that story like way stronger, way more self-assured and suddenly actually way more powerful. So I've always liked that as like a fulcrum in her arc because I think it's it's one of the seeds that's planted that eventually Stern and Shooter pick up on when they turn her into like, you know, the best Avengers leader ever. Mm-hmm. Going back to the uh, the Under Siege uh, storyline, I reread that the second time uh, just a couple months ago. And I, I remember at one point thinking... I don't remember. Does Jarvis die in this story? <laughs> like, he comes like, close, yeah. That was such a ridiculous... I was like, no, Jarvis doesn't die here. What do you think? But I was like, I was reading that. I was like, I really think they're going to kill Jarvis. Like, well, this, I, is, I, this is getting dark. This is going dangerous. And and yeah, like, I, I knew in my head, I was like, no, he doesn't die here. But I really thought, like, even the second time reading it, I was like, maybe, maybe they do kill him. <laughs> You're like, maybe I misremembered. But even the epilogue to Under Siege is, is a fully focused Jarvis issue. Mm-hmm. Where he's in the hospital, all the Avengers yeah, are coming to visit him. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. And he actually has this whole little emotional arc where he's like, I'm out. I can't do this anymore. I almost died. And then comes to a point at the end where he's like, no, my, you know, I'm, if I'm going to be as heroic as the people I serve, I need to step back into service. And it was, that's my favorite Jarvis story ever. Yeah, that, God, that arc, Roger Stern was just at the top of his game. And that arc is so good. There's a moment in it where Baron Zemo has Cap tied up. And he breaks into Cap's locker and he has a picture of his mother. Mm-hmm. And it's the last picture of Cap's mom. And he rips it to shreds in front of him. And Cap just stays stone-faced. And Zemo gets frustrated and he storms off. And then at the end of the of the arc, when they've defeated the Masters of Evil, they Stern takes the time to loop back to Cap. And he's talking to Monica Rambeau, who's the greatest Captain Marvel. And he starts crying. And he's like, this was the last picture of my mom. I don't. He's like, I, will I even remember what she looks like in a few years? And you're like, oh, my God, this is such good writing because it hit him really hard, but he wouldn't show it to his enemy. And it's just I mean, it's it's the it's for me, it's the pinnacle of of, of comic books, or especially for the Avengers. It's the it's the best Avengers run. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. As much as I like seeing uh, Janet in fishnets in this story, the Wasp is known for something else, which is numerous, almost comically so numerous costume changes um i think it's actually been parodied more <laughs> a few times but uh <laughs> do you have a particular favorite wasp costume i do i have a couple um before i mention them i have to say i hate her fishnet costume in this, in this story. <laughs> I, I don't i don't like it either <laughs> it is so and i love i love the power of fishnets i'm a big zatanna fan big black canary fan you know and, I, and you know i've listened to the show and i was super excited when you're like wait what the wasp and fishnets and then when I reread the issue, I was like, "Why does it look dirty?" Like, yeah. like you she know, doesn't just, she doesn't belong in fishnets. She shouldn't have fishnets in her costume. This is just uh, this is a very weak segue just to make an excuse to have this story. But 
Yeah, yeah. She just looks like she's in her underwear. It's really not <laughs> yeah. Tom Morgan. That's as much as I thought the art was fun and cute. That was something he miss very much misses the boat on. But yeah, so I have a couple. I have a couple favorite costumes, and one of them is probably it's it's. I mean, you know, if you ask. 10 comic book fans this one would probably show up but around avengers uh, for a long time actually but 199 in particular george perez is drawing the avengers and there's a wasp costume that's light blue and white and there's only one leg and the other Mm -hmm. leg is bare and it is it's such a pretty look i mean it's george perez so it's like oh of course this is you know well designed and, and really gorgeous and i just really liked it i've always liked the color scheme i've always thought it was a a really dynamic look, but also very feminine in a, in a really cool way. So that's one of my favorites. And then my absolute favorite is from uh, the Roy Thomas era, Avengers 69 to 71. She wears a tweed jacket and a scarf and like no leggings. And, and, and she looks like Marlo Thomas. She looks like, you know, that girl out about town in the, you know, like a, a little cute little kind of 60s go-go outfit, but she totally fights crime in it. And I love it because <laughs> it's not practical in any way. I mean, she she literally looks like it's her first autumn in New York and she's, you know, <laughs> dressing the part. I mean, it's it's the the Anne Hathaway montage from Devil Wears Prada, right? Yeah. And I, and I love it. It's just it's so not practical. It doesn't provide her any protection in a fight, but it's pure Janet Van Dyne because it's a great look. And that's really kind of all that matters. <laughs> How about you? Um, I, I do like her look from the siege air, from the under siege air, the Roger Stern look when she just has, it's basically a, a kind of yellow vest, yellow gloves, yellow boots with, depending on it, it's either black or kind of dark blue sleeves and legs. Um, it's just a very sort of simple, but easy to visualize, uh, sort of superhero costume. Uh, and then there's actually, I, I think it was during the Remender Uncanny Avengers, I think she was brought back in a costume that was very similar to that similar color scheme, except she had sort of a version of the classical headpiece helmet that she had uh, from the original costume with the goggles. Um, And it kind of reminds me of like the the movie version of the Wasp, but you know, you get to see her, her lower half of her face, her lips and everything like that. And it's cool. Uh, I just thought that was kind of a, a cool look. I do like the the yellow and black or yellow and blue color scheme for her. I think it's fitting for the wasp. So yeah, probably that that bit that natural costume from the Stern run I really like. I love that costume too because that's the the costume I, I most identify with her. Mm-hmm. You know, because of those, that's my favorite run. I just have trouble because Professor X's outfit from Secret Wars one, the all yellow with the giant oh. black X, has just so ruined that color scheme for me that I don't know. I, have, I just have trouble, but yeah, that, that's a great costume. That that is that's that's an all time great as well. I really love it. Um, okay, then uh, I think moving moving beyond uh, this episode should drop uh, within a week of the release of the movie Ant Man and the Wasp. Uh, Sean, what do you think of the character, uh, sort of uh, the Wasp, whether it's Janet Van Dyne or not, uh, within the Marvel Cinematic Universe? I'm super excited. I I love Evangeline Lilly. Like I was a big Lost fan. I'm actually I'm one of those weird people who was such a big Lost fan that I I actually think they nailed the final season, which I know is sacrilege. I know there are people who are like, "What?" But but I had you'll understand this. We my wife and I had our our daughter between seasons 5 and 6 of Lost. And so we watched seasons 1 through 4 religiously and we followed it and we read all the articles and all the theories. And then we had a kid and our lives blew up and, you know, and, and you get no sleep and, you know, you know how it is. And we watched season six probably a year and a half or two years after it aired. 
So we had all this space between us. So when we watched it, we kind of just went in fresh. We were like, oh, okay. You know, we, we remember what happened in season five. So we loved it. And so Evangeline Lilly just has a really special place in my heart because she's one of my, you know, Kate was one of my favorite characters. So I love that they nailed the actor for it. So I'm, I, I love how tough she is. I really, really like how buff she is. Mm-hmm. I think it's really cool that they're, they're just really playing with genre conventions where she's the fighter. She's the tough one. If they're going into battle, she's the one with the plan and the intellect and the strategy. She's the one you trust. And, you know, Scott's going to kind of force gump his way through whatever adventure they're having and, <laughs> and see if he wins or not. So I really love her as, as you know, it's Hope Van Dyne. And, I, and I'm, you know, that part bugs me a little bit. Just the, the continuity nerd in me is like, well, it should be Janet. But then the fact that Janet Van Dyne is going to be Michelle Pfeiffer is like I don't know who's directing this movie, but apparently it's my puberty because <laughs> I because it's like oh Michelle Pfeiffer and Evangeline Lilly okay you know yeah so that's just great. <laughs> I, I I liked so much about it like I have very I like I love the movie Ant Man because it made the powers of Ant Man look really cool mm-hmm. and little kids left that movie wanting to play as Ant Man and you, I, I will forgive it any sins for that. Um, but there were still like a lot of nitpicky things that I that bothered me about the movie, and one of them was I felt like they spent the entire movie showing us that Hope Van Dyne was clearly the superior character who should have been in the suit, <laughs> and I was like, put her in the wasp suit, make her the wasp, make her the wasp, and they didn't do it until the mid credit stinger. Um, so I was like, ah, okay, so we have to. Uh, the fact that we're it's going to be twenty movies now before we really get a proper wasp in action, and the. Ah, the this the the part of the fanboy in me that thinks this is why we can't have nice things. I can't watch watch the original Avengers movie now without thinking, what if Scarlett Johansson was playing the Wasp instead of Black Widow, and you know, like Doctor Selvig was Hank Pym or something. And, oh yeah. And like what like you could have had like these types of things. So I, um. I, I, that's that's an alternate universe that I would love to play in, but yeah, I do like that they're they they're making her a tough character, who again from the looks of the the teaser and the full trailer, it looks like she's gonna kick all the ass and it's really gonna be yeah. her again like taking charge and and Ant Man just like hanging on by a thread to kind of survive the movie, while it really seems to be like it's gonna be Hope or the Wasp doing all the doing all the hard work so. Well, I need this movie, man. I I was not emotionally prepared for Infinity War. <laughs> I mean, you know, I have I have Infinity Gauntlet. I read the mini. You know, I knew the story, but I went into that movie and I I just like you know and, and spoilers. You know, by the time this drops, you know, the entire world has seen the movie. But within the first five freaking minutes, you know, we lose Heindel and Loki. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm clearly not in a place emotionally for this. Like, I just am not ready. And so I am so ready for Ant-Man and the Wasp. Even the trailer just makes me grin. Like the the moment where she kicks the van open and throws the Hello Kitty Pez <laughs> dispenser. I like I'm not kidding. Like I like I'm like, yes, like there's a primal scream for me. Because one of the things that Marvel does, you know, I'm, I'm not laying any new ground here, but one of the things that Marvel does so well is to swap tones and to have, you know, tonal range across their line. And that, in, in Infinity War in particular, it was so it was so evident. The minute the Guardians of the Galaxy hit, the movie just felt ten pounds lighter for a little bit, you know. Mm-hmm. And and so I'm so ready for a fun romp. 
and and a little reminder of the the sillier side of Marvel, you know. And then I love, I mean, it's just that their cast is brilliant, um, you know. And, and Paul Rudd in particular, I mean, it's just made to play Ant Man. So I'm really excited for it. I'm excited for Evangeline Lilly, and I think I, I don't think this is going to happen. But if anybody's got the audacity to do it, it's it's Kevin Feige and Marvel. I could see them laying the groundwork for her being the leader of the Avengers, like whatever phase two Avengers team there is. I could see it being her who's who kind of looks around the room and goes, all right, everybody fall in line. Here's what we're doing. And so I, I don't know. I hold out some hope that that this is just the beginning for her. I hope so. I hope so, too. Um, I, I know she filmed stuff for Avengers 4. I really hope that both she and Ant-Man because, uh, yeah, I, I'm assuming that this movie will end like the post credits or mid credits thing will acknowledge the end of Infinity War. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm hoping that they will be kind of integral to or, or or very tied into the events of Avengers 4 and that by the end of it, you know, as we see some of the old guard being phased out, I hope we see the new lineup of the Avengers kind of being phased in and I think she will be uh, a, a focus of that. I think she will be front and center. Yeah, I don't see any reason why, you know, especially if Marvel kind of continues its current formula and, and, you know, borrows a little bit from the the current Star Wars formula of these like side projects. There's no reason why there's not, you know, a Wasp standalone film at some point. Yeah. Do we want it based on the story we just read? No, they could be better. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hey, listen, if you give me Red Ronin on screen... Yeah, I'm okay. I, I, I think I, I, I would be okay with it. I would I would I'd say I'd be the I'd be first in line to see that movie. <laughs> no, do my story. Have her shrink down in one of an Ultron head. <laughs> There's an Ultron head somewhere in, That would be awesome. In the damage I mean, control garage, like deep storage oh, garage. It's so good. I you know and just, it's just that reminder too of like, you know, we can pull out we could just mad lib this. We could be like Doctor Doom and, you know, the absorbing man walk into Star Labs and you know, I know I'm mixing universe, but like all of this is on the table. Yeah. Like it's so bizarre that we live in a world where like we very well could get a, a Wasp in Ultron's head movie and it could be, you know, the the surprise hit of 2025. You, know, you never know. <laughs> All right, Sean. Well, thank you very much for uh, helping me talk about this character and the story and being part of this special episode of Power of Fishnets. Where else can our listeners find you if they want to hear more from you? So I am on Twitter at Sean42AZ. Uh, I am the co-host of Marvel Superhero Secret Wars and Beyond at the Pulp to Pixel Podcast Network. I am, you can also find we have some other shows like Secret Sagas of the Multiverse, which is basically comic books in media. We have MotuCast, which is Masters of the Universe, and uh, a few new shows that are actually coming down the pike pretty quickly, uh, along with Dr. G and with Greg Arujo, who is like the nicest man in in podcasting he's just you know the nicest person in the world i don't know how he got paired with me he must have been a really bad person in another life which i've told him repeatedly and he just keeps denying but i'm sure there's some secret you know there's something there he's hiding uh so so we're you know our shows drop usually first week of every month and then um yeah like you know hit me up on twitter and and just thank you so much for letting me be on the show and you know i was on uh you had me on midnight the podcasting hour and that was a blast getting to talk about Bernie Wrights. And so I appreciate you, you know, you know, taking t- I appreciate you doing this twice. Like first was an accident. Second is just masochism. So, you know, it tells me a little bit about you, too. <laughs> and seriously, folks, you need to be checking out the Marvel Secret Wars and Beyond podcast that Sean co-hosts for no other reason than five words. Chulo, the Herald of Galactus. <laughs> 
that was my favorite moment. Yeah, that was my favorite moment when Greg and I realized that that Galactus had a herald that just got out, went out and got him. You know, it's it basically space Tinder. It, it's my favorite. It's my favorite moment ever as a podcaster. <laughs> you never listen to me. I can't believe you don't think this is cool. Wait, what? Oh, I do think this is cool. The modifications I've made to the AI are very exciting. Ugh, no, not stupid Ultron. The Avengers. We're superheroes now. I'm a scientist. With superpowers on a superhero team. Look, I applaud the idea, but just because Iron Man says we're a team doesn't make it so. We're five strangers. It takes time to form a team. It takes trust. I wonder where Thor slept before now. Does he even sleep? The Hulk probably slept wherever he wanted to. I'm moving into the mansion. What? You have a penthouse apartment in the city. You, you don't have to move. Firemen sleep in the firehouse. <sighs> She's very excited. All right, folks, we are going to take a short promo break right now, uh, and then I will be back with your listener feedback from the last episode. Don't go away. In late 1984, Marvel's direct sales manager sat in a crowded meeting of comic retailers. Let's be honest, Secret Wars was crap, right? But did it sell? The room exploded with applause. Well, get ready for Secret Wars Series 2. Beginning in 2018, Pulp to Pixel's Marvel superhero Secret Wars and Beyond will do the unthinkable Secret Wars 2. We'll take a detailed look at the event, the tie-ins, the new characters, and we will attempt to answer one of the largest questions in the history of the Marvel Universe. What the heck was Jim Shooter thinking? No, no, seriously, what was Jim Shooter thinking? Well, you can find out at the Pulp to Pixel podcast network, where you can subscribe to all of our amazing shows, or just to Secret Wars and Beyond itself, as it is now in its own omnipotent feed. Secret Wars 2 and Beyond, a Pulp to Pixel podcast production. You'll believe an omnipotent being can use the restroom. On the last episode of Power of Fishnets, I got my pregame on for Avengers Infinity War by talking about Gamora with special guests Al Sedano and John M. Wilson, both from Resurrections, the Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast. We got some likes and shares and retweets on social media. We also got some comments on the Fire & Water Network website, which can be found at fireandwaterpodcast.com. The first comment came from Clinton Robison of the Coffee & Comics blog and podcast. Clinton said, Great coverage. Not that I don't love me some Zatanna and Black Canary, but this was an interesting diversion episode. Now, when do we get to the Ultraverse's fishnet wearing Lady Killer? Uh, I am not familiar with that character, or really anything from the Ultraverse. I've never read any of those books. Don't tell Shag or David Ace Gutierrez. Uh, Chris Franklin, my co-host on Batman Nightcast, as well as the co-host of Superman Movie Minute, JLU Cast, and Supermates, all here on the Fire & Water Network, said, I really don't have much exposure to comic Gamora outside of her Ohatmu entries, but her costume made quite an impression. I love both Guardians movies, so I go straight to Zoe when I think of the character. Uh, then Chris said, This episode gives me hope that Ryan will greenlight that all-Magpie episode of Power of Fishness. <laughs> what? No, we've already covered Magpie on Nightcast. I'm not talking about her again. Uh, Rob Kelly, the other voice of Superman Movie Minute, as well as MASHcast, DigestCast, TreasuryCast, Film and Water, Fire and Water, Who's Who, Mountain Comics, Pod Dylan, and Turn It Off with Tracy, 
all part of the Fire and Water Network, said, I really hope Starlin is wealthy after Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Disney is basing a huge chunk of the MCU on his concepts and characters. Uh, to that point, Al Sedano chimed in and said, In the past, Starlin has said that he was getting more money out of creating Mongol than Thanos. But in the recent interview that Diablo Frank did with him on the Rolled Spine podcast, Starlin said he is now getting more money from Thanos. I just hope it's a lot more. Completely agree with that. Uh, and then Rob Kelly mentioned, Happy to hear there are more Power of Fishnets episodes coming. I feel like Victoria's Secret should buy ad time or something. I would totally be more than happy to play a promo and read advertisement copy for Victoria's Secret on the show. And hell, there's a Victoria's Secret ad set to the Bob Dylan song Lovesick. Rob and I could both do it. Paul Hicks from Waiting for Doom and the DCOCD podcast said, Cosmic Marvel is a blind spot for me. Thanks, Ryan, Al, and John for highlighting some stuff to intrigue me. Hmm. I was just waiting for that to be snarky or sarcastic, but... Seemed like a legit compliment. Hmm, that doesn't that doesn't seem right from Paul. Maybe I read it wrong. Uh, we got a comment from someone named Jack Bone who said, "Fan of Gamora since finding the Warlock reprint miniseries, but it never occurred to me that her outfit was a full body fishnet. You know who else rocks one of those? Spider Man villain Mysterio, fishnet and fishbowl." Uh, funny. I never thought of Mysterio's outfit as fishnets, but rather a kind of square padded pattern. Uh, if I did allow it, though, I mean, I could definitely read some Mysterio comics for this podcast next summer, since the rumor right now is that he is going to be the villain of the next Spider-Man movie. Uh, Ward Hill Terry said, You guys managed to talk a lot about a character who isn't much to talk about. Gamora was essentially the hot chick in Starlin's Warlock comics. She wore a skin tone costume, so the fishnets gave the illusion of partial nudity. Her story, slight as it is, is almost pointless, as you discussed. Briefly brought from the future to slay a villain, failed, and that's it. I find that many of Starlin's stories are a lot of fun, but don't really hold up to close scrutiny. Well, Luckily, I don't have to hold them to a lot of scrutiny on this podcast. That's for Al and John to do. But I do agree with the first part, that they are a lot of fun. Uh, Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, I know I'm starting from a different place, but I can usually see why a woman is considered sexy. But Gamora? The classic costume looks tacky, while the blotchy eye makeup that Marvel's second generation of creators were so fond of, see also Marionette and Dazzler, is just nutty and clown-like. Uh, Diablo Frank of the aforementioned Rolled Spine Network uh, responded to Martin saying, I think the makeup was just the 70s talking. Reminds me of Mom. She was still abusing blue space raccoon eyeshadow into the 90s. Uh, and then Frank said, On reflection, Gamora was a sort of Boba Fett to me. She was part of something I deeply loved from my childhood that was formative, but her role was rather tiny, and actual demonstrations of her badassery were much more sparse than I remembered. I never saw Gamora as sexy. She should be terrifying. As you guys noted, she's a stealth assassin raised by a mad god titan, so she should never be someone you could entirely trust. Rather than a love interest or a femme fatale, I think she's the just-on-the-sane-side-of-semi-psychotic blood-red murderer. Not that it matters, because she's the girl in the movie with all the boy-space adventures now, so you can chuck all that Starlin vibe in the bin. I got excited when her miniseries was announced and it looked like she might regain her long-lost edge, but on reading it realized Nicole Perlman is a Hollywood screenwriter with very safe mainstream inclinations. Also, it was a dumb book and Gamora was the worst thing in it. 
Uh, I agree with that take. Uh, I would love to see Gamora get more of a crazy, scary murderer vibe. And yeah, sadly, the recent Gamora miniseries that I read for this was mm, not very good. No. Uh, Brian Linton said, I never associated Gamora's costume with fishnets, but I'm glad Ryan did so that we could get this great episode. That's, hey, that's what I'm here for. I see fishnets where no one else does. Uh, Brian said, I agree that Gamora's appearance in the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie was a little disappointing, especially during the prison scene. I think she should have saved Peter from being shivved rather than the other way around. It would have been a good way to show Peter and the audience how lethal she could be. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, I would have liked to see a scene like that or any scene that demonstrated her abilities and backed up the reputation that she had. So. And the final comment came from Tim Price, who said, First time listening to Power of Fishnets, and it didn't disappoint. Fun episode all around. Well, thank you very much for that comment, Tim. I hope you go back and listen to some of the previous episodes. Uh, thank you, Tim. Thank you, everybody else who left a comment or who supported the show on social media. Thank you once again to my guest on this episode, Sean Ross from the Pulped Pixel Network. Thank you, wonderful listeners, for downloading this podcast. What is next for the show? I'm not entirely sure right now when I will get back to it. There's a lot of stuff on my plate at the moment, so it's been a lot easier and a lot more fun really to just do these one-off special episodes than rather a continuous storyline. So I don't know when I will get back to more Black Canary or Zatanna stories. Maybe I'll do a special episode on the Daredevil villain Typhoid Mary. Let me know if that would be of any interest to you. Yeah, until next time, whenever that may be. Power of Fishnets is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Power of Fishnets Facebook page. You can also find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01, or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. Power of Fishnets is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. Since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. I tire of these geeks. Should we not call the other Avengers? They'll only slow us down, big guy. Think you can clip their wings? Aye. Hold up! But they will escape. They'll think they're escaping, but they're actually going to lead us right to their secret base, where we'll beat them all up. Verily. Thank heaven for little girl.